And our first reading is in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And we also read in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Every year churches um, and organizations, they'll hold conferences and they'll do retreats on evangelism and, and being out on mission. And I had a chance uh, over the four-day weekend to actually speak at an evangelism conference. And uh, it's, it's been some time since I've done that. And it was, it was a real blessing to me getting a chance to, to dive back into the scriptures, to prepare for the four-day series, um, and then to share the gospel with those who were both saved and unsaved. Um, and is, it brought some conviction as well to me that I realized that I have not been faithful in sharing the gospel with you in such a way that you will share it with others and that there hasn't been um, enough teaching on the movement out evangelism. And so by God's grace for the next few weeks before we go into our next book, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about us sharing the gospel of grace. Um, We're going to look at what it it has to say about what, what is the mission itself and what are we called to do? Are we called to do anything at all? Is there any responsibility for us? And, and if we go out, what is that message supposed to be? Do we know what the message is? Because there are lots of messages that are going out of churches today that are not the gospel. Um, and, are, and are we going out with the right motivation, with the right heart? And are we doing it in such a way that it brings glory to Christ? And so, if you are patient... And by God's grace, we'll spend a few weeks looking at some of these questions and asking ourselves individually and collectively, Camden Avenue, are we engaged in the Great Commission? Are we sharing the gospel with the lost? And by God's grace, he'll bring revelation, he'll bring conviction, he'll bring teaching, he'll bring motivation in all those areas. So this morning, I'd like us to look at mission, just mission. I had these divided up differently. But you know, the longer you study a subject, the more there is to preach on it. So if this goes more than four weeks, um, your complaint is with God, not me, all right? I'd like to look this morning at the universal nature of mission, two, the gospel mission, three, the believer's mission, and four, the lost missionary. The universal nature of mission, evangelizing, the gospel mission, the believer's mission, and the lost missionary. Let's look first at the universal nature of mission. What do I mean by that? When you use the word evangelism, that's a loaded term. Uh, even within the church. And it means lots of different things to lots of different people and lots of different things to lots of different churches, even though it ought not. It certainly means something in particular to those outside the church. Evangelizing for most people outside the church is looked at as a bad thing. Um, in fact, we, even in this passage from Matthew chapter 9, there were many people out sharing many messages. Christ was bringing a gospel message. And so lots of messages are going out all the time. But the general response in our culture is not one of, oh, you have the gospel, I'd love to hear it. Share it with me, please. 
That's not been my response, usually, not my experience in sharing the gospel with people. Uh, proselytizing is a word, and even that, proselytizing, trying to convert people, trying to get people to believe what you believe. And one of the great lies that's made its way into the church is that because the culture is so hostile to it, that it's wrong that we do it, that we, we should be quiet, you know, we should work quietly and not say anything. Um, but I, I, want, I want to just touch on the first point here and get you to see that it's a fallacious argument even outside of Scripture. And the reason is every single person inside and outside the church is on a mission. And every single person is proselytizing. And every single person is trying to get someone to convert to their worldview. Everyone, without exception, is engaged in evangelism. Believer and non-believer. And so, when the culture says, don't share your message with us, they are very much sharing their message with us. Right? They're falling on their own sword. Everyone, including the agnostic, including the atheist, has a very real worldview that shapes the way they think, the way they speak, the way they live, the way they relate to people, how they communicate to people, the message they communicate to people. In other words, there's no such thing as a neutral faith system, a neutral worldview. There's no such thing as non-evangelism. Everybody's evangelizing all the time. I'll give you an example. I had a colleague that I worked with. And uh, she and I did not see eye to eye. She was not a believer, and so we disagreed on several things. And she said to me one time, I don't want you sharing your faith with your students. And I said to her, that's absolutely impossible. And she said, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. She says, no, it's not. I said, okay, let's not go down that road, because that's how our dialogue usually went. Like two-year-olds going, eh. And I said, I tell you what, I'll do that. I will stop sharing my faith with my students if you stop sharing your faith with yours. And she looked perplexed. She says, I don't have a faith. And I said, well, of course you do. Now, granted, it was, it was a mixed-up faith. There was a little Buddhism and a little, you know, uh, uh, Near Eastern mysticism and some extreme environmentalism in there and lots of other isms, and they were all kind of packed together. But there was definitely a faith system. And she said, I, I don't understand what you mean. I said, let me ask you a few questions. And I said, you have a student that comes to you, and she's pregnant, and she wants to get an abortion. What will you do? And she said, I would help her. And I said, why? She said, because I believe it's the right thing to do. And I said, no, easy, come on, all right, come on, let me finish the, how this plays out. I said, you have two students that are dating each other and they're engaged in premarital sex and they want your opinion on it. What do you say? She said, well, I, w- I would tell them to make sure they don't get pregnant, that they love each other and, you know, to protect themselves, that that's okay. And I said, why would you tell them that? She said, because I believe that's the right thing to do. And I said, you have a daughter, yes? And she said, yes. And I said, if your daughter has a boyfriend and they want to live together before they get married, what counsel do you give? She said, well, I would absolutely tell them to live together before they got married because I don't want them divorced like me. And I said, and why would you share that? She says, because I believe it's the right thing to do. And I said, don't you see? Every single one of your answers was based upon your belief system, your worldview, your faith. She said, that's different. I said, no, it's not just yes, it is. I said, okay, here we go again. She was very much communicating her faith to those in her mission field. She was a missionary. Everyone's a missionary. Everyone is sharing something. Even the people who are not sharing in their silence are communicating their worldview. And those who say to you, I believe that faith is a personal thing and it ought not be shared. (laughs) And they say that to you. What are they saying? (laughs) They're communicating to you their faith system, their worldview. In fact, they're evangelizing you, telling you to to close your mouth, to stop. 
And in the very argument, they put their argument to death. No such thing as a neutral worldview. Every single person is evangelizing. And so, the question is not, are you on mission? Are you evangelizing? That's not the question. The question is, what mission are you on? What evangelism are you engaged in? That's the, that's the only question for everybody, inside and outside the church. And for the believer it is, are you on the mission of Christ? And are you evangelizing a gospel message of Christ? So point two, the gospel mission. If everyone's on mission and everyone's sharing the message and everyone's trying to convert everyone else to their belief system, their worldview, then for us, the most compelling question is, what are you conveying? What are you communicating to your friends and to your family members and to your coworkers and to your neighbors? How are they hearing you and seeing you and perceiving you based upon your behavior, based upon your conversations? Are you communicating Jesus Christ in your life and with your words? Or are you communicating the world? It's one or the other. Are you engaged in the Great Commission and sharing the gospel with the lost? Are you engaged in bringing yourself glory and honor? Are you, are you more concerned with the things of God or with your things like popularity and fitting in and having friends and rising in the corporate ladder at work and getting good grades and writing those papers that you know if you write the paper in the way that you ought to write it, that it's going to be graded in such a way that it's not going to be good for your grade. What mission are you on? What evangelism are you engaged in? The Bible is radically clear on this. There's no gray area. Radically clear on this. The Bible says that every believer, young and old, educated, uneducated, young in the faith, old in the faith, mature, immature, we are all called to engage in the gospel mission. Without exception. That means if you're saved by grace and you're in the church and you're not engaged in it, then you are in violation of what God has called us to do. And we'll look at that in the next several weeks more. The Bible says, in fact, the the last verse I had here in Luke 19, which kind of throws us back into Matthew chapter 9, the mission is clear. Jesus said in a single verse in Luke 19, 10, he said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Christ came. Now, he did lots while he was here, and there was so much revelation at his coming, but he came for the distinct purpose of seeking and saving what was lost, to seek, literally, to go out and to save what was lost. And that's not a good translation. A better word in the Greek, it's actually the same root word for the name for Satan. It's to seek and save what was destroyed, what was broken, what was decimated and torn apart. You say, well, what was that? I've actually heard this misquoted. I've actually heard it preached to seek and save the lost. And it says that which was lost. Well, what was lost? What was it? You say, well, I was lost. Yes, but it's not just you. What was lost? John Milton, in his poetic, if you haven't read Paradise Lost, you should. It's beautiful literature. But he talks about this. He talks about Adam and Eve. And he talks about paradise being lost. And he writes this. Just listen. It's beautiful. They, Adam and Eve, looking back, all the eastern side beheld of paradise, so late their happy seat, waved over by that flaming brand, the gate, with dreadful faces thronged in fiery arms. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose. Their place of rest, 
providence as their guide. They hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. What was lost? Paradise was lost. The presence of God was lost. When we turned and we rebelled against God, innocence, purity, peace, eternal life, a right worship of God by those created in his image, a right worship of creation to God, lost, decimated, destroyed. Mankind living in harmony, lost. Mankind loving one another as we are created to love, lost. And Jesus came to seek and to save what was destroyed, to restore it, to bring it back, to make it right, to fix it, to fix it. So you know what? It's not going to end like this. This is not going to be the end of the story. And so he came to make things right, to, to create a family, to restore a broken universe, to turn back upside right, which has been turned upside down. This mission of seeking and saving the lost has not changed. It hasn't changed from the beginning. The reason that Noah and his family were preserved because that mission God had in mind. The same mission that God had in mind when he made the covenant with Abraham, that he would make him the father of many nations. The same mission that he had in mind when he said to David, surely one of your descendants will sit on the throne. The same mission that, it, that all the prophets had on mind when they were proclaiming the gospel through the nation of Israel all the way up until the time of Christ. The same mission that Jesus Christ came and lived out perfectly and calls us to as well is this mission. This grand mission. Matthew chapter 9. This is early in our Lord's ministry. In fact, we get almost a, a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 9, listen. Jesus went through all the towns and villages. He's in Galilee. Okay, he hasn't left his hometown area yet. This is where he grew up. This is where he was raised. And so he's going to the villages and the towns there. Now listen to what he's doing. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom. And he's healing every disease and sickness. And then he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus is in Galilee going from place to place and he's doing three things, three fundamental things that are fundamental to this mission. He's teaching, he's preaching, and he's healing. Now he's in the synagogues and what is he teaching? He's teaching the Old Testament scriptures and how they're being fulfilled in him, how the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying all the prophets and all the law and all the sacrifices and all the temple worship is pointing to me. I'm the Messiah teaching that. And when he's preaching, he was proclaiming the good news of the gospel of grace. That salvation had come. Salvation had come through Christ to Israel and to the world. And then he was healing. He was going to those people that sin had brought in and ravaged bodies and sickness and demon possession. And he's healing them. Teaching, preaching and healing This is the gospel message. And what he's doing is he's seeking and saving the lost. He's reconciling mankind back to God through teaching, preaching, and healing. And he did it perfectly. He did it perfectly. In verse 36, it says he did it with compassion. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When we contemplate Christ as... Savior, 
Christ coming and teaching and preaching and healing. Before I came to a saving grace, I hated this teaching. I hated this thought. I hated the thought that I needed a savior, first of all. And I hated the thought that there was one savior. I hated that. And I hated the fact that it was that savior, that one. But for the, those who come to a saving grace, we hear this and we go, this is, this is the story we want. I mean, this is, the, this is the hero from heaven, right? He comes down out of heaven and he comes to earth and he, he comes into our mess. And we've made a mess. And what does he do? I mean, look, at he comes and he teaches us. And now we understand because we don't understand without his teaching. And he comes and he encourages us and brings us hope with the gospel of grace by preaching. And we need hope because we're hopeless without him. And he comes and he heals us. He brings healing through his message. And we need healing because everything's broken. Everything's destroyed. Our relationships, our work, our homes, our bodies. And we hear this and we go, yes, this is who we want. We want this hero. This is the good storyline, right? Creation's good. Man screws it up. And God sends a savior. We go, that's the creation, fall, redemption story. That's the one I want. I like that. And we hear it. And you, and you cannot read this without rejoicing and going, yes, amen. And then you get to verse 37. And suddenly the storyline's not all that good. Because Jesus goes from saying, hey, this is what I'm doing. Now, get up. And follow me. See, we like sitting in our seats with the popcorn and the, and the big soda. And we like going, that's right, Jesus, he's doing a fantastic job. We love it. And he says, put down the popcorn and get up here. Get up on the stage. Get into the action. Get out into the world. And we go, wait a minute. Can we just, can we lop off right there at the end of verse 36? Can we, do we have to go talk about the harvest being plentiful and the workers are few? Because he's t- telling me that I need to go out. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. You go, plentiful, that's usually a good word. In this particular case, not so much. Why? He's saying there are lots of lost people everywhere. Our mission field is filled with people who do not know Christ. I know I've mentioned this, and you probably already know it, but I'm going to say it again. You live in a lost people group. The San Francisco Bay Area has been designated by major missionary organizations as a lost people group. You don't need to go into the 1040 window. You're in the 1040 window. Not literally, but... Do this for me. If you don't want to, you don't have to. Raise your hand if you have someone in your family. And keep your hand up. If you have someone in your family that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, raise your hand. I don't have to go any further. Keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. How many of you have someone, a friend or a coworker that doesn't know Christ as Lord and Savior? How about a next door neighbor? How about the person that you buy your groceries from? Everybody, go ahead, you put your hands down. Everybody does, right? That's your mission field. You don't need to go anywhere. You don't need to go out and look. Your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, this is the plentiful lot that does not know Christ. These are the people that Christ has put in your sphere of influence for you to go and share the gospel of grace with. In the year 2112, let's fast forward 100 years. All of us here, even very likely the youngest, maybe not, but even the youngest, 
certainly all the people that you're working with, most of your family members, most of your friends, most, we won't be here. We won't. We'll be in one of two places. We'll be in heaven or we'll be in hell. One of two places. In the year 2112, and that's not that much more, it's not so difficult for us now to project time. A hundred years does not seem that long. But a hundred years from now, everybody we know, including ourselves, will either be in heaven or will be in hell. That's not a question. That's a categorical fact. Now, if they're in heaven, if they know Christ as Lord and Savior, if they have been redeemed, then they will, they will for all eternity enjoy the blessings of the presence of God. They will see paradise that was lost and now redeemed. And they will have real joy. They will have real peace. They will be in a place where the tears are wiped away and the physical and the emotional and the psychological stresses of life, gone. They will be in a place where there is feasting, yes, feasting and singing and laughter. You say, that's, that's a place I want to be. In fact, if you were to describe that to 99.9%, they'd say, I want to be there too. But that's not going to be everyone's destination. In the year 2112, everyone that we know will either be there or in hell. In hell. You say, oh, do we have to do the hell thing? Do we? Yes, of course. We're talking about evangelism. It's heaven or it's hell. Now, hell is the exact opposite of everything that heaven's going to be. The exact opposite to an infinite degree. The Bible uses terms like Weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. I, that one's always been one that just gets me. Gnashing of teeth. Darkness, flames, burning, everlasting torment, eternal punishment. It's where sin will be, death will be, Satan and all his dominions. I don't know about you, that's not a place that I want to be. And I can't imagine for a moment it's a place where you would want someone you love to be. Someone you even know to be. I would argue someone that you don't like very much to be. And we can go even further. Someone that you hate, you wouldn't want them here. There's no plan B. There's no alternative. It's heaven or it's hell. The gospel mission is a saving mission. It's a rescue mission. It's a rescue mission with great urgency. You can see the the urgency that's been placed upon me. And forgive me, if I cause you to stumble because of this, hear God. So what is the believer's mission? I got the gospel. What's the believer's mission? Christ came to seek and save what was destroyed. What's my role in it? He said the harvest is plentiful. That literally means great, large. But the workers are few. And the word in the Greek, it's oligos. It means puny. Puny. That means we have all these people who do not know Christ. And we have these little few people to share the gospel. And then he says, and it's a prayer, listen. He said, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is a prayer for you. It's a prayer for me. It's a prayer for every single person who comes to a saving grace in Christ. Everyone, without exception. Every single person that's been saved by God's grace is called in. We're called into his presence, right? I mean, we get a glimpse of the holy God, and we see ourselves as sinful, fallen creatures. And then he reveals Christ. And by his grace, we're ushered into his presence and we receive the grace and we're saved and we're healed and we rejoice and we're, we're so overwhelmed with his presence and joy. And then he goes, now go. And you go, wait, I don't want to go anywhere. I'm just going to stay right here with you, God. But he calls everyone in and without exception, he sends everyone back out. Everyone is sent back out. 
And the grand lie in the church, and I, st- I wasn't raised in the church, but I still hear it today, that this passage is not talking about you. It's talking about pastors, right? It's talking about those who've been called to do this. This is the pastor's job. Or, even better, this is the missionary's job. You know, the, the people who, who get their families and they go to faraway places and they share the gospel and they plant churches and they make disciples. It's, he's talking about them. He's not talking about the everyday Christian. Well, here's the lie. There's no such thing as an everyday Christian. The Bible doesn't speak of them. I've never seen it. I've looked. No everyday Christian. What does that mean? That means every single believer is a missionary. Every single believer is an evangelist. Every single believer has a mission field. Every single believer has been drawn in. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me does what? Draws them in. Draws them to me. You go, oh, I like that drawing part. And then he closes his grand teaching on evangelism in Matthew 28. And he says what? All authority on heaven has been given to me. Now what? Now go. Go and make disciples. He draws us in. He sends us back out. The problem today is we get drawn in and we stay. We, I mean, we stick inside, and we're not going to go anywhere. We're like little kids saying, I'm not going. I'm not going. My mother, where's my mother? Is she here? She's not good. I can tell the story. Listen. My mother, when I was, well, I was supposed to go to preschool, I think it was preschool or, or kindergarten, one of those first years, and I had no desire to go, and I told her I was not going. Um, I was unsafe, so give me a break, right? So... She, she leaves me outside, and I'm supposed to be picked up by uh, another mom who's taking her son, who looked equally disgruntled. And I was, I was supposed to get inside this. It was, I can never, I'll never forget, a blue VW bug. And she went to, she said, get in the car. I said, I'm not getting in the car. And literally, I had my hands up here and here and locked underneath, and she's pushing my back. That's not how we're supposed to go out into the mission field. I mean, if you're sprawled out on those double doors, which would be kind of hard, it's wide, and God's pushing, that's not how we're supposed to go out. We're supposed to come in and receive the grace and the power and joy and then go back out with the grace and the power and the joy. There's no greater, in my mind, teaching on this and and, um, uh, practical application than what we see in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's one of my favorite chapters, and I've talked about it probably too much, but forgive me. The first time I read it, I, I was so blown away by it. Um, I'm, I'm going to share it with you. Isaiah chapter 6. The great prophet Isaiah. He's brought into the presence of God. And he says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. Listen to this, this vision that he has. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, angels, powerful angels, each with six wings. It'd be nice to have two. They got six. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. The presence of God, right? The Shekinah glory of God. We saw it in the Old Testament, both in the desert, the tabernacle, the temple. And what's his response? Does he say, whoa, what's his response? It's a right response. He says, woe to me, I am ruined. Literally, I'm a dead man. Why? He says, for I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. 
And I live amongst a people of unclean lips, also sinners. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I'm supposed to die. God's holy, I'm not. The right response is death. And what happens then? Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth. And listen to what he said. This, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Of course, it represents the atoning blood of Christ, right? And so he sees God and all of his holiness. He sees his sin. He says, woe to me, I'm a dead man. And God heals him. God forgives him. God saves him. But that's not the end of the story. Isaiah says, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. God said to Isaiah, go and tell the people this. And he sent him out with a message. What happened? Isaiah comes into the presence of God. He sees the holiness of God. He sees the depravity of his own heart. He sees the saving grace that God exercises to him through Christ. And then he says, I'll go. And he's like like that kid in the front row that has their hand up on every single question. You ask a question, "Oh, oh, 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 please, please, pick me, pick me, pick me. After a while, you just give up and you pick him every time. He didn't even know what the message was. He didn't even know what he was going to be sent out to do. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter. He was so overwhelmed with the glory of God and the majesty of God and the holiness of God. And he was so taken aback by the fact that he was forgiven in the presence of this God for his sin. And he was so overwhelmed with a sense of joy. He says, just send me. I imagine God says, you don't even know what I'm going to do. Have you do. It doesn't matter. Send me anyway. You don't even want to have you say. It doesn't matter. Send me anyway. Send me. And the message he was sent to take to the people wasn't a good one. But he says, I want to go. I want to go. What had happened? In the presence of God, seeing God's holiness, seeing his sin, and experiencing the saving grace, his heart was radically changed. And he became an evangelist. He became a missionary. On the spot. What does that mean? It means... That if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, when you came to a saving grace in Christ, you too became a missionary. You too became an evangelist on the spot, commissioned as such. That means that you're a missionary even if you're not sharing the gospel with the lost in your mission field. You are. Just because you're not doing it doesn't mean that you're not a missionary. That means you're an evangelist even if you're remaining quiet when you ought not. It means if if you have good news but you're not sharing it. It doesn't make you, these, it doesn't turn you into a non-evangelist or a non-missionary. It just means you're being disobedient. We want to stay in. I understand that. Not yet, though. There'll be a time when Christ comes again in glory or he takes you home and we get to stay in. There'll be a time when you won't be evangelizing. There'll be no need for it. When he comes again in all of his glory, no one's going to say, oh, by the way, have you heard the gospel? Say, yeah, right there. He's here. But until then, we must go out. Until then, we must be missionaries. We must be evangelists. We must. Jesus said, we're called to go out into his harvest field. Now, this is such an important point. Look at verse 38. It says, ask the Lord of the harvest in the prayer for us. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. It's not our field. It's not your field. The soil's not yours, the fruit's not yours, the the product's not yours. It's his field. We're called to submit his mission, come under it, submission, and engage in the work that he's called us to engage in. 
There was a woman I met years ago. She was a migrant farm worker. She was, she was in her latter years in life. I remember spending some time with her over a piece of pie and a cup of coffee. And she was telling me when she grew up in the South, she was a migrant farm worker. And that means she worked someone else's land. And their family would travel from property to property, depending upon the season, and they were workers. And I said, did that ever bother you? She said, no, it wasn't my land. Like, I, I was a worker. It wasn't my land. It wasn't my produce. It wasn't my fruit. They weren't my crops. I was the worker. She was called into it. That was her role. She understood that. And there was no animosity. She didn't try to twist it. She wasn't bitter about it. That was her job. Jesus says here, calling us to be sent out into his field, his work. He's the Lord of the harvest. Now, why is this so important? If we turn this upside down and you begin to look at the harvest field as your field and you begin to look at the the lost in your mission field as your lost, I mean, there are... We could spend hours talking about this. We can go sideways quickly. But there are two that I see prevalent in our culture in the church today. What happens when we don't see it as his field but our field or the church's field? One, we see this, that we begin to change the rules and the mission itself. The entire mission changes. If it's our field and it's our work, then we'll alter the message. We'll change it. You know, church and people coming to a saving grace and us gathering is no longer about knowing Christ more intimately. It's no longer about serving one another in love. It's no longer about ministering to the needs of the lost in our community. It becomes about things like attendance and numbers and programs. And are you doing the right thing in the right way at the right time? And we we forget about the people and we forget about the souls and we begin more concerned about prosperity and structure and size and as soon as we do that we begin then to do things like slick creative ways to get people to come into the church and we become you know marketing experts we do things like saying well what is what are the felt needs of the masses let's meet their felt needs so instead of sharing the gospel someone say are you lonely yes come to church you'll make some friends which, hopefully, if you go to church, you will, but that's not the reason you should be going to church, right? Are you filled with anxiety? Come to church. The pastor will make you feel better. Some churches, yes. Some, not so much. Are you filled with fear and you need security? Come to church. All these reasons that we, we move to when we take the mission that God has given us and we make it our own. And we change the rules. We change the mission altogether. Instead of teaching and preaching and healing the gospel of grace... It becomes self-centered, it becomes self-glorifying, it becomes man-made, and it becomes wicked. One other thing that I see when we do not remember that it's his harvest field is that we begin to look and make judgment upon the fruit. We determine who will be saved and who won't be saved. We determine who we'll share the gospel with and who won't. Because there are certain people in your life, I mean, they're so angry and they're so bitter, they're never going to be saved, right? Right? I mean, why share the gospel with them? It's a waste of time. It's a waste of breath. And then there are others. They're such nice people. They're such good people, we say to ourselves, foolishly. They, surely they should be saved. And you'll share with them. And you adjudicate, you judge in his field. He said, it's my field. And it's my fruit. He says, sow that seed widely. And I will determine who will be saved and who won't be saved. I'll give you two cases in point. Somewhat humbling for me. Two students that I witnessed to. One young man, 18 years old, raised in an atheist agnostic home. Brilliant young man. 
had him as a student for a year, and then he spent about a year going to and from church. He was in our, uh, a Bible study for at least a year. Lots of dialogue. I mean, we, we dialogued about all kinds of things, highbrow things, lowbrow things. And I'm thinking, this guy, he's got to be saved. God's got to save him. I mean, he's right there. And one day, he said, that's it. It's all gibberish. And he never came back. That's it. One day, he, he had gone back to his parents' worldview. He said, I'm going to stay an atheist or an agnostic. And that's it. And he left. I remember thinking, what happened there? What had I done? I had convinced myself that this young man was supposed to be saved. I had judged. You say, well, at least you were judging nicely. No. And if people say, well, you never know the seed you planted. I have no idea what God will do with it. But what I know is that I expected him to be saved and he wasn't. It made me mad. Let's do the reverse. A young lady came into my classroom from a relatively conservative Jewish background and hostile toward Christians. She found out that I was a Christian. She found out I was a pastor. She found out I was a pastor of a Southern Baptist church. And I was the evil ogre. I mean, I was the bad guy. Really bad. By God's grace, with a little patience, with a little love and a little dialogue, she realized I wasn't the evil, evil ogre that she thought. God took this young lady, ironically, it's amazing to me, I should say providentially, I apologize for that, in a seminar on Plato's Republic, she came to a saving grace in Christ. <laughs> Through the Republic. What, what, like God can't use Plato? Really? Really? No big deal. No big deal. Not only, so not only does she stop despising Christians, she comes to a saving grace. She moves away. And she has probably been in the process of, of dialoguing and sharing the gospel with uh, 100, 200 people who have come to a saving grace as well. Actively engaged in evangelism. Now, I pegged her as someone who would never be saved. Never. I was wrong. Thank God I was wrong. So, we come into his field and we are called to, to do his work in his mission, in his time. It's his field, it's his harvest. So we, we've seen, I pray, that everyone's on mission. We've seen that the gospel mission is what we are called into. The believer's mission is the gospel mission. And if you've heard this and you're somewhat indifferent toward it, not a good response. Or if you're terrified by it, not a good response either. If you hear it and say, yes, that's good. Hold on to that. But if you are indifferent or terrorized right now at the thought of being compelled to go out, then you've missed, your eyes have been taken off the lost missionary. What do I mean by that? Last point, we'll close. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus went out first. He went out teaching. He went out preaching. He went out healing first. He is the first worker. He's the first evangelist. I mean, we talk about the culmination of the gospel of grace. What all the prophets, yes, that led up to it. But he went out first. Not only to pave the way for us, but more importantly, he went out first to save you. Right? I mean, this missionary came to you and said, you're destroyed. You're destroyed. I'm going to restore you. He came to you and said, you're lost. And for many of us, we didn't even know we were lost when we were lost until he told us, hey, by the way, you're lost. You went, oh, I am. I am lost. He came to you and he said, by my sacrifice, by my blood, by my body, I'm going to buy you back freely. I'm going to bring you in. 
I'm going to bring you all the way in. Not just, I'm going to bring you all the way in into my Father's presence. If we lack compassion for the lost, if we are terrorized the thought of sharing the gospel, then we have forgotten where, if you know Christ, you've forgotten where you were and you've forgotten how you got there. You've forgotten where you were and how he got you to this place. And what's really bad, over, the, over time this happens to us. In the church, we get kind of, uh, there's a malaise of, yeah, well, I've, I've always been here. We lose the urgency. We lose the passion for those that Christ came to seek and save the lost. We forget who we were and how misguided, misdirected, and lost we were. How many many of you came to a saving grace a little later in life? How many many of you? I I did. I came at about 20. So you you know. I mean, it... There is something, you think back about those times before Christ, and lost is an understatement. An understatement. When Christ reveals himself to you, you see that not only were you lost, you didn't have any purpose, you didn't have any hope, you didn't have any direction. Every direction you went in, you knew fundamentally was wrong. But you didn't know which way to go. You knew in your heart of hearts, Romans chapter 1, you knew that you should not be saved. You knew it. If you have forgotten what it was like, talk to someone who remembers. Say, tell me what it was like before you knew Christ. Tell me what it was like to wake up each and every day striving to bring glory to yourself, realizing you can't. Tell me what it was like to not know where you were going and in the very direction that you were going is the one that you made up yourself. And how bogus is that? I mean, how bogus is that? This is the direction I'm going. Why? It's the right direction. Why? I made it up. Why? I don't know. I have any idea why. I don't know. It's desperate. It's lonely. It's overwhelming. Purposeless, directionless, hopeless, self-centered, glory-starved existence. By God's grace, Christ had compassion on you. This must become something that you see has happened to you in Christ. You turned from him. You rebelled against him. You took his crown and put it on your head. You said, I'm Lord. And then he came in our rebellion, in our lostness, with compassion. And he said, no more. No more of this. I'm going to show you what's true. I'm going to bring you, I'm going to give you an Isaiah moment. Here's God. Here's you. You're going to cry out for mercy because you need to be saved. The compassion that we do not have is a result of our forgetting where we were. Jesus Christ, the only way this becomes possible, so we forget where we were and we forget the cost, the only way this becomes possible for the seraph to take the live coal and touch Isaiah's lips, a coal was not sufficient. There must have been, there must be blood, there must be sacrifice, there must be death, there must be atonement. And therefore there was Christ. Christ came and what Christ did is he came and he made himself unsavable. You say, what? What does that mean? He put himself in a position to not be saved. The great shepherd came and made himself the lost sheep. Right? And he did so so that when he would go to the cross 
as the lost sheep, as the unsaved one, he would take the penalty that we rightly deserved. And the reason that the, the cross is so glorious to those who are saved, because we get that, we say, that's right, that was supposed to be me, it was supposed to be my body and my blood and my life and my eternity and my hell, and he took it, he took it from me. And when he cried out on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I am now utterly lost, and he was utterly lost. So not only does he take away our losses, he then gives us his glory. He gives us the fellowship of the Father. He gives us his joy. He gives us his future. Literally his future to reign with him forever and ever and ever. Jesus Christ lost paradise. So you and I, through his blood, could have it. That's compassion. That's a love for the loss that we should have too. And to the degree that you see where you were and to the degree that you see the cost that was expended to bring you to where you are now, you'll have a heart. God will change that in you. He'll give you a heart. Our Lord's lostness, ultimate lostness, led to his ultimate exaltation. And that's the beautiful part. The story doesn't end with Christ being lost. It ends with him rising from the dead and being exalted. And so when he says to us in Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And then he says... I have all the authority. Therefore what? Therefore go and make disciples. He says go out. Make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And then he says and I love it. And surely I will be with you always even to the end of the age. He doesn't bring us in and send us out alone. He brings us in and then he goes out with us. So if you're terrorized you're not seeing it properly. You're going through that door with him. It's his field. It's his harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest. The mission hasn't changed. The message hasn't changed. The calling hasn't changed. The only question for the believer is, are you going out? Have you gone out? Have you gone out and now you're tired? And so you say, I don't need to go out anymore. I did my, I did my time. Where does it say that? We're retired evangelists. We're retired missionaries. Hmm. I'll close with a story. My wife and I and our family got to go to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. I think it was over the summer. Summer? I love that place. I mean, I don't know how you can go to the aquarium and not love that place. I love all the, it's the sardines that go in the circle around and around and around. I think, that's a life. I mean, you know those poor guys, Really? Are you dizzy yet? Makes me dizzy watching them. We were there and we're in this one particular area where the turtles are and you can touch all the guys and we're enthralled with it. And there was a little guy, um, younger than Josh, I'd say he's probably seven, and he was engaged touching the turtles and he's just, you can see, overwhelmed with God's creation. And he turns around and it was one of those, no mom, no dad, I'm lost, I'm a dead man, Right? I mean, this is, this is the look in his eye. And, I, and I'm watching it first, thinking, hmm, is, is this the panic? Because I've had it. You've all had it, you know? Like your parents going to leave, right? Well, maybe for some they will. But for most parents, they're, they're not going to. And, you're, and it's that panic look. And, and I waited, and I thought, well, if he can find his parent good, cause I, you know, rather than this strange man coming up and say, hey. So I waited, and he, and he started to turn, and he started to cry. And I went up. And I got down on my knee and I said, are you lost? He goes, mm-hmm. I said, listen, I guarantee that your mom and dad did not leave. 
I guarantee that they're here, okay? And your dad's going to find you. I said, so let's do this. Where were you? And he goes, I was over there. I said, let's go back to where you were and let's just stay there. And so we did. We went back and we stayed there. And then we looked and we looked. And within a couple minutes, you see this dad scrambling around the corner, right, like this, and comes and he seeks out his boy and he finds his boy. And the moment the boy saw his father, what was his response? Relief, peace, great joy, overwhelming sense of satisfaction. Father apologized profusely, thanked me, and they were off. Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which was lost. He calls us and he sends you back out to do the same. There are lots of boys and girls like that in your mission field that are utterly lost. Share the gospel. Let's pray. Father, this teaching is not difficult to understand, but we sure fight living it out. I thank you that your son had compassion on us, that he looked upon the harvest field and he saw that indeed it was plentiful. There were so many souls that did not know you. And then he turns, Lord, and he prays to you that we, those he is saved by grace, would be faithful to go back out and to work in his field. That we would take the message and go out to our family, to our friends, to our co-workers that we've worked side by side with for 15, 20 years and never told them about Christ. I pray that's not the case any longer, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this church that we would not be a quiet church, that we would not be a people that watch those we love silently slip into hell. But instead, Father, we would understand the reality of heaven, the reality of hell, what it means to be lost, and we would take to them the good news. It is great news. This morning, by your grace and mercy, give us that sense of urgency. Make clear to us the mission that your son came to seek and save that which was lost. And then move us into it. I pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.